tonight I want to teach on what I would call, the Bible doesn't call it this, but I'm just going to call it the evidence doctrine. The evidence doctrine. What is the initial evidence that someone has received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And the reason that this is a vital topic is because there is a rigorous debate within the pale of Christianity about this very topic. For example, uh, some Christians will say that there is no more speaking in tongues, that they use the language of 1 Corinthians 13, 8, tongues shall cease, and tongues have ceased, and there is no speaking with tongues. Well, you'd be hard-pressed to convince 700 million Pentecostal and Charismatics in the world today, uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of them, I won't say all of them, but perhaps even millions have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit speaking with tongues. Um, there's also a unfortunate misunderstanding or misapplication of the scripture in Christian circles that they will uh, concede that people speak with tongues, uh, but they don't understand the difference between the gift of tongues and the gift of the Holy Spirit, or the gift of the Holy Ghost. And even though they both involve speaking with tongues, scripturally, they should not be confused. For example, someone may receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and speak with tongues, but they may not, they may or may not also receive the gift of tongues. They're not necessarily the same thing. In fact, there are two different words in the New Testament. One word for the gift of the Holy Spirit and a completely different word for the gift of tongues. And they each mean something different and they are never used interchangeably. Oh, it's hard to stay humble when you're right. So... That's another area that we want to uh, perhaps bring some clarity. So let me read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. This is an historic moment for the early church. This is the day the church was born, perhaps, you know, 33 or 34 A.D., in a place called the Upper Room, and it spilled out into the streets and perhaps ended up at the temple, which is where 3,000 were baptized that day. So let's pick up the narrative, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost, which was a day of celebration on the Jewish calendar, Pentecost means 50. It was 50 days from Passover to Pentecost. When that day came, they were all, and if you want to know who that is, read chapter 1. The Bible says the number of the names together were about 120, which included 
the apostles, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Jesus' brothers. Don't miss the fact that Jesus' brothers, his half-brothers, same mother, different fathers, uh, were present on the day of Pentecost. What, what, What does that mean to us? That means that Jesus was authentic. That means that Jesus, who ate Cheerios with them at breakfast every morning, suffers and bleeds and dies for them. That's my brother. That's my big brother on the cross. And they were present on the day of Pentecost. That touches my heart. They didn't ignore him. They didn't, you know, throw him away. They didn't think he was some zealot that was, you know, off his rocker. But they knew that he was authentic. And so they were filled with the Holy Ghost. So verse two, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled all the house where they were sitting. This circles back to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in chapter three of John. The wind blows where it wants to, he said, and you hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it came from or where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. So the word sound there in John 3, 8 is phone, from which we get our word phonics, which involves the speaking of words. So a sound from heaven, like a rushing mighty wind, fills the house and where they were sitting. And then cloven tongues, divided tongues as a fire sat upon each one of them. This circles back to the prophecy of John the Baptist who was asked if he was the Messiah. He said, no, I'm not he, but there's one coming after me. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And even the Old Testament says that our God is a consuming fire. So they see this visual manifestation of fire Flames of fire sitting on top of their heads. It was a vision that they all saw, apparently. Although it never happened again. And then the scripture says in verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So it's amazing to me that Christians can read the same scriptures and come up with different ideas. And I realize that in oneness Pentecostalism, we have a oneness Pentecostal hermeneutic, which means we have a lens through which we read the scripture and we interpret the scripture. But if we're just reading this, and this is the day the church is born, and this is what happened to the first believers, the first church members, it might stand to reason that this would be the expectation of all other believers, not just in Jerusalem, but like Jesus said in Acts 1-8, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnessing to me both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost part of the earth. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and say that in Christianity we have the haves and the have-nots. And I'm not saying that that 
classic Pentecostals are better than anybody else. We don't, we're not in the business of taking things away from people. We, we don't want to win arguments by, by drawing lines and burning bridges. And in fact, if you win an argument, you'll lose a relationship. So this is not about debating people. Debates never solved anything. It just makes people mad and everybody goes home angry. Okay. So we're just having an, a discussion, sort of like husbands and wives. We're having a discussion about uh, the word of God. Okay. Now, one of the things that's very important is if you're, for example, teaching a Bible study or if you're talking to someone who is interested in Pentecostalism, you've got to give them the proper uh, lens, if I could say that again, in interpreting and reading the Bible. So let's deal only right now with the New Testament. So the New Testament is arranged in what we call divisions or sections of the Bible. For example, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we call the the Gospels. Okay, the next book is the book of Acts, which is the book of history. It's the only book of church history in the New Testament. And it logically follows in in, uh, succession, if we're talking about uh, a continuum, the Gospels happen before Acts. Acts happens after the events of the Gospels. Okay, so the Gospels tell us the birth, the birth, the ministry, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what the Gospels give us, okay? Every chapter, last chapter of each of the four Gospels, you know, has a piece of the Great Commission and Christ's ascension from the Mount of Olives. Okay, what happens next? The Bible says that when you open up Acts chapter 1, they're still standing there at the ascension. And they're watching Jesus as he goes up. And two angels come and say, why are you standing gazing? The same Jesus which has come up from you, risen up from you, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go. And so they go back to Jerusalem. It was just really, you know, across the valley. They're on the Mount of Olives. You can see Jerusalem from there. It's like from here to twice as far as the end of the driveway, really, of the, of the life church. So they go back to Jerusalem And they're waiting for the promise of the Father. And so they gather in this upper room. They're fasting. They're praying for days and days and days. And finally, the day of Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit falls. Okay. So now we see the birth of the church. So the book of Acts is the book of church history. Then the following book is the book of Romans. Okay. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 3rd John, Jude, Revelation. Okay, except Revelation, you got Romans through Jude are what we call epistles. One of our old pioneers, they were interviewing a, a, a candidate for license and they said, do you know what an epistle is? He said, is it the wife of an apostle? <laughs> well, that was back in the day. <laughs> said, no, an epistle is not the wife of an apostle. An epistle is a letter 
in the New Testament that is written to who? The church, the churches, the believers. Okay, the epistles are not written to unbelievers. They're not written to people who are not saved, who have not obeyed the gospel. Okay, it's written to people who have already obeyed the gospel, who are in churches, who are in fellowship, who are in community with, you know, a pastor and the fivefold ministry and other believers that are in their town, whether it's Philippi or Corinth or, you know, Thessalonica or Galatia or Ephesus, for example. And so they're in community and Paul and other New Testament writers are writing to these believers and they're exhorting them and they're teaching them uh, about how to live for God. And isn't it about right that there's one book really in the New Testament, how to get saved, and there's 22 books, how to walk with God. That's about right. That's about right. You know, we can, somebody can repent of their sins tonight and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for their mission of sins, and they can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit tonight, and we can find all of that in one book, but then we got a lifetime of 22 books because it's going to take a lifetime to be like Jesus. And some of us, including me, won't even get that done in a lifetime. But we're still reaching for him because he's the goal. Amen. Jesus is the goal. Amen. So when we're unpacking the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, even though they're packaged in the New Testament, listen to this carefully. They're, they're, we find those books in the New Testament. Yet dispensationally and theologically, and let me even say soteriologically, which is a big theological word, which means salvation. When we're talking about being saved under grace, nobody is being saved under the dispensation of grace in the four Gospels. The reason we know this is because John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39, say the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit could not fall. The opening of the church, the birth of the church could not happen until Jesus was glorified. So when was Jesus glorified? Well, it was the day in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, he ascended up into heaven. That's when he received his glorified body. As long as he was on this earth for 40 days, showing himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of heaven, the Bible says in Acts chapter 1, he was in a resurrected body, but he wasn't glorified yet. Now, there's the difference between your body and my body and a resurrected body is that Christ's resurrected body had no blood. He already gave that. It was not replenished when he came out of the tomb on the third day. Now, he could be touched. 
He wasn't a ghost. He said, Thomas, touch me, feel me. He ate bread and fish. In fact, cooked it up on the shore for the disciples so he could be touched. He ate, but it was a resurrected body. But when he ascended into heaven, he received his glorious or his glorified body. And the Bible says that if we are born again, that Paul said that this corruption will put on incorruption, this mortal will put on immortality. And we will also, when we see Jesus face to face, we will also, in that moment of the coming of the Lord, whether we're asleep in the grave or whether we're alive and remaining, to use Paul's language in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll be caught up together with them in the Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So, once again, nobody's being saved. Nobody's in the church. The church isn't born in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I know somebody's always thinking, well, what about the thief on the cross? Well, let me first of all give you Galatians 4.4. Galatians 4.4 said, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. Even Jesus was born under the time span of the law. Even though he was grace, even though he is the baptizer of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit can't come till the physical body of Jesus goes away. But don't make any mistake about it. Jesus is the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. Paul, Peter said that on the day of Pentecost. He said, he, meaning Jesus, has shed forth this, which you now see and hear. So when the Holy Spirit comes, you will see it and you will hear it. And so the Holy Ghost has not fallen in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the thief on the cross... He made it by the skin of his teeth. And the other thief didn't. They were equally, they had equal access. Jesus is an equal access savior. They were the same distance apart. And one accused and ridiculed Jesus. And the other said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So the thief on the cross certainly was a special case. And we do not see any other before or after reoccurrence of this man's faith. But think about the unusual circumstances. And it's really a standalone experience. But dispensationally, he's, he's, he's saved by Old Testament faith, however focused in Jesus Christ. I mean, it, there's, a, there's a vortex here that's going on. You know, Jesus has got, you know, 10 more breaths in his lungs and then he dies. And now, so, and the rest is history. So, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are the Gospels. Nobody's being saved under grace. When we get to the book of Acts, the church is born, the Holy Spirit falls, 
And we begin to see a normative pattern of how people are saved under grace. All right. Now, I want to point out a couple of passages in the book of Acts where the Bible says that people receive the Holy Spirit. Tonight we're talking about the evidence doctrine. What is the initial evidence that someone has received the gift of the Holy Spirit? Now we've already cited Acts chapter 2 verses 1 to 4. The Bible says they received the Holy Spirit and it clearly says they spoke with tongues. That's Acts chapter 2 verse 4 if you're taking notes. Now, let's go to Acts chapter 8. The apostles apparently sent Philip to Samaria after the diaspora or the persecution of Stephen. Verse 4 says, They that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word, and Philip ends up in Samaria. Pick up the narrative in verse 14, Acts 8, 14. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, verse 15, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. Okay, so read your Bible. They're believers. They'd only been baptized, for only they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's probably going to be our next uh, apostolic doctrine study is water baptism in the name of Jesus. And, but, but notice they had, the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on them. Notice this language, fallen. Hear it. See it. And so when you read your Bible, you see that the Holy Spirit is not there one second and it's there the next second. It falls. It's visible. You can hear it. So again, we're talking about the debate under the pale of Christianity. A lot of, lot of theology. Well, you receive the Holy Spirit automatically when you believe. Or you receive the Holy Spirit automatically when you're baptized. Or when you repent. When you Accept Christ as your personal Savior. Now, there is no language for that in the Bible. There is language for receive Christ. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Well, how do we become a son of God? Study that. In fact, in the same book, Romans. The Bible says we receive the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Everybody say Abba. Now you're speaking the Greek equivalent of Dada. We receive the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. I was texting with a pastor friend of mine today. And he said in 1983, he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He was a teenager. He said, I spoke in a fluent language. He said complete sentences. I, would, I don't know how he would know that. But I told him, I said, well, I received the Holy Ghost when I was nine. I, I think I was speaking more like Abba, Father. I think I was speaking more 
like a child, you know, speaking gibberish. I didn't have that fluent, you know, powerful symbols, you know, syllables of tongues, you know, in a complete language. But it doesn't have to be a known language. It just has to be a language other than the speaker's own that is divinely inspired by the utterance of God. And, uh, and so in verse 16, he had not yet fallen on them. Now verse 17, then Peter and John, they, meaning Peter and John, laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible does not say that the believers in Samaria who had been baptized that they spoke with tongues. But don't run away from there and say, well, they received the Holy Spirit, but they didn't speak with tongues. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. When you continue to read the rest of the chapter, there is a sorcerer who bewitched the city of Samaria with sorceries. His name was Simon. And he came to Peter and he was wowed by whatever it was that he saw. The Bible says when he saw that by the laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit was given. He said to them, give me also this. I'm going to use a word that's not in the scripture. Give me this trick. Give me this trick. He had bewitched the city of Samaria with trickery, with sorcery. He wanted to add this trick to his bag of tricks. Man, that's a cool trick. What I saw when you laid hands on those people and what I saw what happened, I want that trick in my bag. So obviously something happened. Obviously something supernatural, something spiritual happened when Peter and John were laying hands on these people. Well, what was happening? Well, the Bible says they received the Holy Spirit. Let's go to a parallel passage where it talks about what happened to people when they received the Holy Spirit. For example, chapter two, verse four, we just read it. When they received the Holy Spirit, they spoke with tongues. So we might well assume that what the sorcerers saw was people speaking in tongues or in languages that they did not know. And when we read a little bit further, it's confirmed because Peter said to the sorcerer, your, your money perish with you, for you have thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. He said, you have no part nor lot in this matter. That's the King James. The word matter is the word logos, which means word. You have no part in this supernatural, miraculous speaking of words, is what he's saying. And he's also saying, this is not my gift to give. You know, it'd be nice to have a little spare change, Simon, but this is not my gift to give. You can't purchase the gift of God with money. How many are glad that the gift comes from heaven? It comes from heaven. It's supernatural. It's miraculous. You can see it. You can hear it. When the Holy Spirit comes, it falls. It fell on them. You can see it. You can hear it. Okay. So 
we could say that there appears to be a strong miraculous manifestation in Acts chapter 17, in Acts chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. Now let's go to chapter 9. Chapter 9. This is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Ananias went his way and entered the house, laying hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you in the road as you came, has sent me. Now watch this, that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He received his sight at once and he rose and was baptized. Now, the Bible does not claim to be exhaustive history. And what that means is it doesn't have every single detail in the heat of the moment. So when we're interpreting scripture, we have to take the corpus of scripture in a proper interpretive context. So if there are pieces missing in one narrative, we go to another narrative where it is complete. But now let me ask a question. If Ananias, a certain disciple in Damascus, comes to Saul of Tarsus, the future apostle Paul, the future writer of 13 books of the New Testament, and he says, I've come to pray for you so the scales of your blindness will fall off your eyes and that you might be baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, is he going to leave without all of that happening? Is he going to leave? And Paul's going to say, well, the scales, that was cool. And you baptized me. Bro, where is the Holy Ghost? No, I don't think so. In fact, when Paul is writing to the first Corinthians, to, to the Corinthians in first Corinthians chapter 14, and he's, he's addressing the abuse of spiritual gifts. He says, I thank my God. I speak with tongues more than all of you. So if Paul is speaking in tongues, by the time he writes to the Corinthians, we might well assume that the moment the Holy Spirit first fell on him is in the Acts 9 narrative when Ananias was there because that was Ananias's assignment. Okay. Chapter 10. Peter comes to Cornelius's house. And I won't take the time for all the details. Verse 46 says they heard them speak with tongues. Back up to 45. Those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many came with Peter because the gift. Everybody say the gift. That means initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit had been poured on the Gentiles for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter said, can anybody forbid water that these should not be baptized who received the Holy Spirit just like we did? So he's not saying the Gentiles got one Holy Spirit and the Jews got another Holy Spirit. They got the same Holy Spirit. Verse 48, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. So here again, we have clearly the manifestation of the Holy Spirit evidenced by speaking with tongues. And then one more example, chapter 19, Paul comes to Ephesus and he finds 12 men who were disciples of John the Baptist. 
20 years after John had passed. And he says in verse 2, Acts 19, 2, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. So apparently it's possible to believe and not yet receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not an automatic uh, experience. Two separate things, believing and receiving. He said to them, verse 3, and to them, what were you baptized? They said, John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying the people they should believe on him who should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they didn't argue with him. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. How do we know this? Because they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now, I have in my notes tonight, and I knew I would not have time to share theologians who are not oneness Pentecostals who agree with us, or we agree with them when we all agree with the Bible, that the Christian normative initiation is more than receive Christ. It's more than accept Christ into your heart. Not taking that away from anybody. The only problem I have with it is when a preacher a, who claims to know what the Word of God says, when someone says, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, I accept you in my heart. And then we, and we had so many get saved tonight. And we clap and rejoice. Um, that is cheating the people from what they can receive from God because there's more. That is the position of the life church. If it's from God, why would you not want it? And if God is giving it, why would you not want to receive it? And, and, and so we're declaring the whole gospel. Now, let me just take my last couple minutes so when Peter said, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, when the book of Acts talks about the gift of the Holy Ghost, that is the Greek word doron, D-O-R-O-N. It means gift of great sacrifice. When Paul is writing about, when he says, do all speak with tongues, or when he's talking about any one of the nine gifts of the Spirit, in chapters 12 and 14, the word gift there is a different word. It's charis or charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, from which we get the word charisma. Then from which we get the term charismatic. Charismatic is not a compromised oneness Pentecostal. A charismatic is a person that believes in the supernatural. They believe in the gifts of the Spirit. But the debate in Christianity is, you know, some will say, well, you know, some receive tongues, some receive prophecy, some receive the gift of faith, some miracles, some uh, discerning of spirits, you know, the nine gifts of the Spirit. And that's true. The Bible says that God gives to every man severally as he will. But Paul is not saying 
that it's normative for just the tongues people to speak with tongues and the other Christians don't have to be concerned about it or don't, don't worry about it. That's not what he's saying. Because there's the initial baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Doron, and then there's the subsequent. In fact, charisma or the charis word includes the idea of a subsequent gift, an after gift. And that makes sense. That makes sense. Once you receive the Doron, the initial baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking with tongues, then you become a candidate. In fact, Paul said to covet these gifts. He said, desire them. Covet the best gifts, he said. So any believer who has been baptized in the Holy Spirit, speaking with tongues, becomes eligible, a candidate, to receive any one or all of the nine gifts of the Spirit so that the gifts can operate in the body of Christ. All minds clear. So that, that should settle the debate. And it's hard to stay humble when you're right. <laughs> I wish... I wish I was speaking to all 1,700 congregations, Christian congregations in America, to, in Kansas City tonight, and the 350,000 congregations in America, because the Bible says rightly divide the word of truth. So let me close this by saying, it's a good time to be Pentecostal. It's a good time. It's an exciting time. You know, it's interesting. Let's stand. It's really interesting. The General Conference of the UPCI, which is a classic, a classic Pentecostal organization that we are a part of. We are having our General Conference the end of September, 1st of October in uh, Long, what is it? Long Beach, California. It's interesting that a big-time, well-known, elderly now, cessationist, and I didn't get time to push back on cessationism. He's a cessationist. He does not believe that we are saved. He does not even believe that we are Christian. I'm not going to say his name. But he's a prolific author and just Google cessation because that's the name of his conference coming up. It's the Friday night of general conference and his church is in California. I don't know where it is. I don't know where it is, but I thought, wow, Lord, when Jesus told Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. He's fought so hard against the baptism of the Holy Spirit. How ironic it would be if the Holy Ghost fell on him at his cessation conference. <laughs> you say, can it happen? Yes, it can happen. It's already happened. My dear friend who went to be with the Lord, pastored in Cincinnati, Ohio, Norman Pasley, they sold their church 
to a group that preached against, wrote books and articles against speaking with tongues. The pastor was like the lightning rod for his organization. No tongues, no speaking with tongues, no none of this. That's of the devil, no way. They bought the UPC church where they had worshiped for 42 years. And of course, the Holy Ghost was in the carpet, the pews, the chandeliers, the paint, the rafters. And Brother Pasley told me one night that pastor was praying in the microphone. Keep in mind, he wrote a book against speaking with tongues and the Holy Ghost fell on him and he started speaking in tongues in the microphone. God can do it. The thing that you're fighting against, God can break in on you. He did it to Saul of Tarsus. Amen. Let's lift our hands right now and let's pray that, that God will break in. We want the Holy Ghost to break into this world. We want the Holy Ghost. We want revelation to fall on the religious. Oh, come on, classic Pentecostals. It's a good time to be baptized in the Holy Ghost. It's a good time to be baptized in the Spirit. It's a good time. Come on. God's going to vindicate the church. It's all coming this way. It's all looking good for the oneness Pentecostals in this world today. Hallelujah. Lord, pour out your spirit. Pour out your spirit all over the world. Lord, break in on that cessation conference. Ha <laughs> ha. Oh Lord, while he's teaching, let the Holy Ghost fall. While he's teaching, let his words become confused. While he's teaching, oh God, let the spirit break in. <laughs> Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. 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 We praise you, Lord. Oh, Lord, we praise you. I, I asked you a few weeks ago to pray for a, a pastor friend of mine in town. that We were going to have lunch, and we did have lunch. And uh, I, I asked him. I said, I wasn't ready for this. I said, pastor, and I called him by name. I said, what percentage of the people that come to your church on Sunday morning are filled with the Holy Spirit? You know what he said? 70%. <laughs> and I believe it. Is it the same Holy Ghost that filled us? Yes, it is. It's the same Holy Ghost. He said, how many in your church? I said, well, probably... 95 plus, 95% plus. He said, oh, I'm, that's where I'm going. He said, that's what I want. So praise God. The Holy Spirit is breaking in. The Holy Spirit is falling. And we thank God for it.